Support for today's podcast comes from Simple Contacts. Visit simplecontacts.com forward slash elevator. Use the promo code elevator for $30 off your first order. Recovery Elevator, episode 173. On the other end of this, there's life. But I have to do the littlest things of just not drinking and then staying centered on a daily basis in, in whatever way that I plug into spirit or God or whatever. And, and things will work themselves out. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Fran. She's been sober for 16 months. She's 43 years old and from Indiana. And after we hear from Fran, I'm going to talk to you guys about something I like to call the sit-run ratio. And before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator Podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me. I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. I want to share with you guys an amazing story. This happens to be a true story. In 1519, Spanish sailor Captain Hernán Cortés landed in Veracruz, Mexico with 500 soldiers, 100 sailors, 16 horses, and 11 ships to begin his great conquest, which was to take one of the world's greatest treasures of gold and silver from one of the world's most powerful empires, the Aztecs. This vast wealth had been held by the Aztec Empire for over 600 years. Everybody knew this because army after army, conqueror after conqueror, had tried to seize this wealth and power, but nobody had been able to do it. Upon arriving after the long voyage, he gathered his men up on the beach. The soldiers were under the impression he was going to talk to them about the vast riches they would encounter, that they would take, and how it would propel them into a life of luxury. They thought that Hernan Cortes would talk to them about the battle plan, the strategy of what to do when arrows and spears started flying. What he said was three words. Burn the ships. He then dropped his sword, which I think is a modern day mic drop, and walked away. The men looked at each other, dumbfounded, and they said, Eh, como? He said, yes. If we are to go home, we're going home in their boats. And guess what happened? For the first time in nearly 600 years, an army successfully took the treasure because they had no escape route. No safety net to protect them. If they failed, they had no choice. Okay, I, I take that back. They basically had two choices, succeed or not succeed. For many people, the answer of what is holding us back in our lives isn't exactly obvious. The question of what is blocking us from obtaining that inner peace we deserve can be difficult to answer for a lot of people. The good news is that if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to what's holding us back in life is most likely alcohol, and it may be time to burn the ships. For the Spanish, retreat was not an option. 
And I believe that to truly achieve the level of success we each desire and deserve, there are times when we need to burn the ships. You might be saying to yourself, that doesn't make sense. We, as a society, we love that phrase. We love to hide behind it. We tell ourselves that certain things don't make sense, or it would have made sense if something else different had happened. You might be saying to yourself, yeah, it, it might have made a little bit more sense for Cortez to keep a ship or two, if not his entire fleet. But Cortez was on a mission, and he knew the only way to keep himself or his men from quitting this mission was to take that option off that table. I imagine the value of those ships in today's world would be in the millions. He burned millions of dollars of ships. It wasn't like Hernan said, burn the ships, and then he pulled Javier aside and was like, okay, Javier, burn the big ships, but uh, go hide the smaller dinghy behind the cove just in case shit really goes south. No, he burned them all. My sails didn't capture any wind in my conquest for sobriety until I started to burn the ships. In regards to sobriety and quitting alcohol, what does burning the ships look like? Well, I dragged my liquor cabinet to the backyard and set that thing ablaze. I'm kidding. This is a metaphorical burning of the ships that does not require anything to burn literally. There is no need to torch the shed behind your parents' house where you used to sneak booze and get drunk. The most important thing I did in my journey, you know, we're going to use the word voyage. Yeah, yeah, fitting for this episode. The most important thing I did in my voyage also consisted of three words. I came out. I came out with my drinking problem to my mom, dad, brother, seven best friends, my fantasy football league, Doctors, physicians, psychologists, employers, yes, I did just say employers, and my neighbors. And it wasn't a casual in-passing statement. They were all sit-down conversations. I burned the ships. I wasn't able to walk up to my neighbor Rick and say, Hey Rick, uh, you know that thing I told you about last week about me being an alcoholic and how I drink by myself most nights at home? And then when I empty the bottles in the trash can the next morning, I first check to make sure you're not outside so you can hear the bottles clink? Yeah, I, I was just joshing with you, Rick. It's all good. Yeah, I couldn't unsay those things. I had my first burning of the ships conversation at the end of May 2014 with my parents, and it's no coincidence that my sobriety date was just a few months later. Deep down, I knew that if I was going to achieve this new life, I was going to have to try something different. The previous hundreds of attempts to moderate and quit drinking had not worked, and it was time for me to burn the ships. Once again, support for today's episode comes from Simple Contacts. There are a million things demanding your time. Contact lenses shouldn't be one of them. That's why we're excited about a great new company called Simple Contacts that is making the process of renewing your prescription and buying contacts, well, simple. Simple Contacts is the most convenient way to get your contact lens prescription renewed and stock up on your brand of contact lenses. Get this, instead of taking time off and spending hours at the doctor just to renew your prescription, you can now do it online in under five minutes. Here's how it works. Take a quick, self-guided vision test from your phone or computer. It's reviewed by a licensed doctor in 24 hours. You receive a renewed prescription and reorder your brand of contacts. If you have an unexpired prescription, you can use them too. Just upload a photo of it or your doctor's info and order your lenses in minutes for a great price. Shipping is free. And best of all, my listeners get $30 off their first Simple Contacts order. To save $30 on your lenses, just go to simplecontacts.com forward slash elevator, enter the code elevator at checkout. I want to mention that this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. You still need to get those occasionally, but it is the most convenient way to renew a prescription and reorder your contacts. Again, check out Simple Contacts and get $30 off by going to simplecontacts.com forward slash elevator and then enter the promo code elevator at checkout. All right, let's hear from Fran. 
Fran, how are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Fran, I'm doing great. It's fantastic to finally speak with you. I sent out an email to my email database uh, last year asking for a show notes volunteer uh, listeners and Fran responded. This was like June of 2017 and said, I just celebrated six months of sobriety. Congratulations on that. I'd love to volunteer for show notes. Um, I think I'd already filled the position at that point, but thank you for listening to the podcast, Fran. And it's great to be chatting with you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And let's get right into this thing, Fran. How long have you been sober? I have been sober for 16 months. Nice job. Thank you. Thank you. It's probably the best decision I ever made. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Alcohol is shit. Got that right. Um, And before we get any further, Fran, give listeners a little background about yourself. Maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you? Do you have a family? Do you have kids? And, but most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Okay. So my name is Fran and I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, but I relocated to Munster, Indiana in 2002. And I, I think part of my story being from Cleveland is important because when I get into the the recovery portion. I have two different sobriety dates. So I did some recovery in Ohio and now I am in recovery in Indiana. But for a living, I am a program director at a college. I am a body worker. I'm a massage therapist. So I train massage therapists. I also own my own business doing that. And I've been doing this work since 1996. So pretty long time. And I am married. I've been married for 16 years. I have two children, ages 15 and 11, and a stepson who's 22. He's part of the story as well, because I think part of my drinking affected his uh, transition into our family, which I owe him, him an amends for. And what do I like to do for fun? I like to practice yoga. I like to be outdoors. In Indiana, we have a little area called the Indiana State Dunes Park. So it's a bunch of sand dunes. I like to go hiking there. And I like to work in my yard. Nice. Yeah. Sounds like you like to connect with nature. Yeah. There we go. There we go. And yeah, let's let's back it up a bit, Fran. Um, I think in an email that you sent me last year, you said you started sobriety 18 years ago, or is that is that what I read? Well, I'm not sure about the years, but I do know, because I mean, coming into sobriety this time, what I discovered is that my brain was completely clouded and I could not remember anything. Mm. So I literally, I, I literally could not remember when I first got sober in my 20s. Here's what I know for sure, that when I graduated college, I was 25 years old, and I know that I was sober. And I know that I went to um, a party, a New Year's Eve party in 1999, so it was going into 1999, and so it was a big thing, you know, Prince was played all night long, 1999. And I know that I was sober for that. So I had three years of sobriety. I think between ages 24 and 27. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was, yeah, I had three really good years of sobriety. And then something changed. Do you know what what made that decision to go to those three years of sobriety from ages 24 to 27? Were you struggling with alcohol in college? Oh, yeah. So when I graduated high school, I had a scholarship to play volleyball in North Carolina and at a small Division three school. And I was I played volleyball down there, and I got injured. I had an acute injury of my spine, so mm-hmm. I had to come home and have back surgery, nice. which kind of sent me into a depression. Sure, totally. Any athlete would understand yeah. that, you know. Like I worked through high school just to get the scholarship, and then I got injured, and I had to come home. Yeah, life life happened. And that's, that's got to be tough. Yeah, it really happened. And then I had to, so I could no longer go to school in North Carolina. So I started going to local colleges around Cleveland, Ohio. And I discovered the restaurant business. Mm. Dangerous. 
Yeah, it was like a, it was like a homecoming. So I started working in an Irish pub. Well, actually, let me back it up. I worked at a, a, a business that was on the river in downtown Cleveland, and it was a lot of fun. We had a blast. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, wearing skimpy skirts and jumping from boat to boat and delivering drinks. I mean, I had a lot of fun. But I had too much fun because by the time I got to the Irish pub, you know, I was drinking on the shifts. I was, you know, drinking before the shift, drinking after the shift. My whole life became the bar, essentially. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that thing, uh, which paid me very well, I, I paid for college cash. You know, it was a very, it was very lucrative, sure. as you know, because you've been a bar owner. But at the end, I found myself just desperate and alone. And, like, I, I had no real friendships. Everything was just shadowed behind a glass of wine or a, or a pint of beer. And, and, I, and my relationships were a complete mess, all of them. So I gave up the restaurant business and just kind of went into a little bit of a depression. Oh, once again. And what brought me to a 12-step meeting, actually, was an ex-boyfriend that I had who was sober. And I knew that his life was working out for him. I mean, he was a really nice guy. We were still friends, even though we were no longer dating. And I called him up and asked him to take me to a meeting. And he did. And that's how I got sober the first time. So through his 12-step recovery program. And it worked. It worked until I stopped working it. Mm. Okay. Lots to comment on. And first off, the restaurant business, it's its fantastic. It's social, it's fun, and it can also be dangerous because that restaurant business that I worked at in college and then before I owned the bar in Spain, I took it a next step and went and bought a bar in Spain. And we both reached the same conclusion, Fran. And this, I have a feeling it's similar for a lot of people who have the genetic predisposition or, or you know, the enhanced dopamine receptors is I was surrounded by so many people, had so many friends and great relationships. I thought while the music was going, the alcohol was flowing, you woke up the next day mm-hmm. and I was dying. I had no relationships. I was so lonely and I can definitely resonate with what you said there and how cool that you went to an AA meeting with a friend who reached out to you. And, um, yeah, tell us about that first stint of sobriety at three years. What, the, what was that like? Well, I mean, I was so young. I was in my early twenties. So I mean, I was sober, but also I was just figuring out who I was as a human being. Mm. And I have a lot of gratitude for that just because I was able to get into my mid-20s with a clear mind. And it was cool. You know, I met some women in recovery. Um, I felt like that experience was really clicky. And I, I was not, I did not really connect deeply with a lot of women in my 20s in recovery. And so, and I just, I, I didn't feel like I fit in there either. But I don't think that was a function of the program. I think it was a function still of my mind. And then eventually, um, I did graduate college, which was cool. So I graduated sober. Sweet. And yeah, that was really cool. And I didn't feel like I had to celebrate and, ha- you know, go drink a ton of alcohol just to celebrate an accomplishment that I probably should have been making anyway. <laughs> well, nice job. Not, <laughs> not a lot of people make it sober. Seriously, I didn't do it sober. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know, I know, I know. And and then and then um, then the internet came around. So yeah, dating myself. Um, so the internet came around, and I was lonely. So I started doing some internet dating, and uh, I was sober. And long story short, just fast forward, I met my husband on the internet in oh. the '90s, or no, in 2000. I think it was 2000. And, one we met 2002 actually we met and so i relocated to munster indiana to live with my husband and we barely knew each other like it was it was silly like i i i don't know that i really thought that decision through even (laughs) though i was sober yeah (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. And he knows that. I mean, I've shared that with him. And this is nothing, and he'll probably listen to this podcast. Sure. But So there's nothing shocking there. Yeah, I hope um, he does. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, as a result of that leap of faith that I took, you know, I did. I had a, I had my first child, and it was an amazing, magical experience. And, and I was sober through the pregnancy. But then after I had her, I probably started drinking wine within a month of giving birth to her. And you had been sober for like three years total, right? Correct. And do you looking back, I know you said it's, it's the vision's cloudy looking back and I understand that fully, but what do you think it was that made you drink after the pregnancy? It was a relocation. I mean, I was no longer near my support group. I wasn't near my family. I wasn't near my 12 step recovery group and I was married and I, and my husband and I were just getting to know each other. Like literally, uh, we met and married and had a baby within the first year. And, and Fran, that is huge, right? This is episode 173. Episode 169 is all about dislocation from what we know, relocation from yeah. your community, from your support system. That's huge. That's mm-hmm. huge. And I was covering, uh, it was huge. Yeah. I was covering Dr. Gabor Mate's book in the realm of hungry ghosts. How he talks oh, about God. how the majority of addiction comes from dislocation from what we know, our culture, our society, our connections to the, to the earth, to people, to that. And wow. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah. I don't think it's a coincidence. That's <laughs> really, yeah. I know. And I, I know on your last podcast, you talked about him more and his research. And I know I'm looking forward to the podcast coming up next week. Oh gosh. But yeah, he, <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to hear about this. Yeah. And, and listeners, from- and, and listeners, uh, we're recording this on May 18th. This podcast episode will come out May 21st. And we're going to chat a little bit about you and I, Fran, when I hit the stop button, just to make sure you're still on board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you will be, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's, okay. let's continue back on path. Sorry. Got it. Um, all right. So you started drinking right after your, the pregnancy of your first child and t- yeah, take us mm-hmm. from there. What happened after that? So it was just, it was easy. Like I, I mean, I just transitioned right back into, you know, well, probably like every other day consumption, I was with a new family, you know, my in-laws, and they were normal drinkers, and they would have wine at dinner or beer on the weekends, and, um, you know, there's probably some pot involved, just recreational stuff, and, and I never was a big pot drinker or pot smoker until later, so, you know, I'll, we'll get to that eventually, but so the, uh, drinking while being you know, after my first child did not become an issue until I turned 30. And I remember my husband threw a surprise birthday party for me. And my best friend from Ohio drove over here and my parents drove over here, which they're divorced. So they came separately. And um, it was a great celebration. And long story short, I was puking in the bathroom by midnight and Mm. my baby was like in the other room and my best friend was holding my hair back. I mean, I just went right back to where I was, you know, and then alcohol, like everything I planned pretty much from then on out became about alcohol. Like, yeah, let's go have dinner. Is there going to be wine or let's go out to dinner? Let me have two glasses of wine. Um, Let me go to the grocery store. Let me get a bottle of white, a bottle of red. Mm. Let me go to the grocery store. I need some tequila. Like everything was about alcohol. Yeah. Cue. And hooks of alcohol addiction. Yep. I get it. Literally everything. I mean, and then, you know, the yoga world, you know, wow, vino and vinyasa, you know, oh next thing I know, I'm <laughs> going to like yoga things and like yoga in Chicago and it's on a rooftop and there's a great DJ. And then afterwards they're selling, you know, they're giving away wine. And most of the people I'm with are having one glass of wine, but I'm taking two at a time and it's still not enough. Yeah. You know, there just was never enough. 
that that right there there was never enough you know one drink is too many and a thousand isn't enough it's just the conundrum that many of us pretty much everybody who's listening to this podcast can relate to um yeah and was there like a bottom moment um around you know december 17th 2016 or yeah lead us up to that moment and if there's other any other things big things you want to talk about feel free feel free to feel free to put them in there well between the time I started drinking and the time I quit drinking from 2002 or 2003, 2002 until December 2016, there was lots of bottom moments. There was moments of my husband and I going out for cocktails on a Friday night that involved vodka and me literally, him and I getting in an argument, me rolling out of a moving car and hiding behind bushes. Like mm-hmm. it's just pure insanity. Mm-hmm. I mean, just true, like pure insanity. We went to a baby shower. And on a Sunday afternoon, my father-in-law busts out some Polish vodka. Vodka is not my friend. I literally cannot drink vodka. It just, I don't know, because I'm Polish, I'm Norwegian, I'm Czechoslovakian. For whatever reason, that alcohol does not mix with my blood. Yeah, you rolled so, out of the car and hid behind a bush. Enough said. Yeah. Well, <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Sorry, I'm laughing. So, I love yeah, it. I know, I know, stuff. I know, I know. Good, but, good, um, stuff. Yeah, it all out. normal. All normal. <laughs> and then going to a, a baby shower for a, a cousin or a niece mm-hmm. on a Sunday afternoon, and the Polish vodka comes out, and I literally black out by one o'clock. Mm-hmm. And it, and it was literally because I hadn't eaten. I, I wanted to make sure that I got a buzz because I was going to be surrounded by my in-laws, who honestly I've never really felt comfortable around. So every time I was around them, I had to be drunk, mm-hmm. or or at least planning on getting drunk. And so the, the end of the, the end of that story is is I end up and this is and this requires me to be so humble to say this because I'm embarrassed by it but I ended up punching my husband in the face and I literally rolled out of a moving vehicle again I swung at my sister-in-law like just pure insanity absolute insanity and then the reverend from my church had to come talk me into allowing my husband to take me home and, like just pure insanity and Fran I appreciate you saying this stuff right because a lot of people do interviews and maybe there's some things that they hold back on and thank you for saying this this is not a place of judgment <laughs> safe place like I said this is all healthy this is all normal stuff that an alcoholic goes through and I, I just want to say thank you because it's probably out of your comfort zone I know it's out of your comfort zone it's hard to say this stuff but there's no judgment it's going to help a lot of people in fact I talk about how I punched myself in Monday's podcast episode so I don't want to go there again but I can relate to you um, yeah. Keep going. Yeah. It's, it's not easy to be honest about this stuff, but I, I know that I'm not alone. And I also know that if, if I, who from all outside appearances appears to have a normal looking life and experiencing this as a result of alcohol consumption, then there's probably 10 other people in my block who have, have, have similar experiences, not the same, but similar. Bingo. And I feel like we're living in a culture that's just, we're glorifying alcohol left and right. And like Nancy Gray or Annie Grace on the naked mind, the snake mm-hmm. and mind, she just, you know, she says that if you drink enough alcohol, you would become addicted. I do believe that. But in my case, I do believe that addiction is a genetic predisposition. I do. I, I, I agree with that as well. And I was actually on Annie Grace's podcast and she brought that up when, during our podcast interview. And I, I agree hundred percent with that. And it's kind of like male pattern baldness. We're like, everybody, well, actually everybody will become bald if they live to be 500 years old. Your genetics will tell you mm-hmm. when you become bald. Thankfully, I'm going to have my hair till I'm 90, right? But I became an alcoholic at an early age given my genetic predisposition and the environment. But yeah, I agree 100% that everybody will become addicted. But you know, the card you've been dealt in life has a lot to play with that. 
It does. And I think you've referenced the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences study. Have you talked about that on a podcast before? Actually, I don't think that was me. Oh, okay. But share it with us. Well, well, so, and I don't know the exact researcher, but I do know that there's some data that's compiled called ACEs. It's called Adverse Childhood Experiences. Mm-hmm. And it's a scale. So when you are able to, as you click off more things on the scale, your propensity for addiction goes up. Mm-hmm. And so like, like your childhood experiences. And I often sit in AA meetings where people are like, yeah, my childhood was completely normal. Um, I had two loving parents, um, you know, all this normal stuff. And that just wasn't my reality. And so whenever I talk about that, I have to preface this with my parents did the best they could with what they were given. Mm-hmm. So I love them immensely. However, when I entered adulthood, I had so much trauma deep in my bones from seeing physical abuse, from hearing emotional and verbal abuse, mm. and from my own physical trauma. Um, I mean, rape is part of my story, and I'm always, I'm always very honest about that. That's how I lost my virginity. And mm. when a woman is, is violated on that level from her first sexual experience, it changes you. Absolutely. And so I... Yeah. I mean, it just completely changes you. And I know I'm not alone in that. So I I went through my early, you know, when I entered that bar business, I was comfortable because alcohol literally numbed my emotional state. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, would, you, I, would you agree with me when I say the heart and soul split? Oh, yeah. 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 There's a cognitive dissonance between who I'm supposed to be uh, and how I was living. Yeah. Big time. And I was going through it too. Yeah. Wow. And we're not alone. Like there's so many people who have this story. And I know now, even only after 16 months of sobriety, I mean, I'm an infant in this whole thing. But man, that, that getting sober the second time is the best decision I've ever made. Because mm. I have more at stake now. You know what I mean? I have a career, which I don't call a bar business a career. I mean, for me at that time, I have a house. I have a husband, I have children, I have little girls who are watching me. Like they're literally watching me and learning from me. And what they saw for years was mom comes home from work, grabs her wine, and then she can have a conversation. Yeah. Wow, what a cool shift. Yeah, that's so cool. And, and yeah, what was it like, you know, when you first quit drinking? Tell us about that. Like, Talk to us about the shifts that you saw and like the time frames and what happened. Well, it wasn't easy. I mean, quitting drinking was a process for me. Um, I, I know that in October of 2015, I was at a barbecue, and I was not, I was the only one that I thought was not drinking at this barbecue. And I remember saying to people, like, yeah, I'm going to give up drinking. I need to lose some weight. And, you know, so I, every time I talked to somebody, it was about me not drinking. So how awkward was that for whoever I was talking to? But then, of course, like the next day, I'm consuming alcohol. Like, I literally could not not drink. And even if it was just one glass of wine or one beer or one shot of tequila, I literally could not go one day without drinking. Mm-hmm. And if I did, I felt like I was a superhero. Like, see, I don't have a problem with alcohol. I, I can go a day. <laughs> yeah, it's your mind justifying um, it. Hey, look at me. Went seven hours without alcohol. I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, I've been there many, yeah. many times. So... So then here's what happens. And I I left this part out. So in 2012, my husband was diagnosed with stage three cancer. Mm. 
and it was a, it was a throat cancer. So I, I just kind of pushed through those that time, like, yeah. you know, go to work, drink some alcohol, go visit them at the hospital, put that on repeat. Like it just, I just, I just survived the experience. Survival mode. Yeah. And he survived as well. And he's better than he's ever been. Like he's super healthy and everything is going great for him. But in, but in his medicine cabinet was some Marinol, which are the pot pills that Mm -hmm. they can give people with cancer. Mm -hmm. And um, so I started taking those. I thought, well, if I want to give up alcohol, let me start doing pots because pot's okay. And it's all in the media. Pot's fine. Everyone's smoking pot. Everything's fine. So I started popping those pot pills and then like I maybe go two days and then have some wine. So fast forward a couple months, then it was just pot and wine, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, and I did research, Paul. I'm telling you, like I Googled, like how pot could help me get sober. <laughs> well, share, share with us what you, what, you, what you personally experienced and what you found out. Yeah. I mean, if Willie Nelson could do it, why couldn't I? Because <laughs> I did find out, I found out that he quit drinking and instead substituted that for marijuana or with marijuana. Is that helpful? So I tried it. I tried it, but listen, I just, my brain does not respond well to any chemicals. Mm-hmm. So that anxiety and depression that I had or, or always was experiencing mm-hmm. was now worse. Okay. So I found myself in a state of mind where I just wanted to kill myself. Mm-hmm. It, it just, this, I don't need to be on this earth. My kids don't need me. My husband doesn't need me. It was like, pour me, pour me another one. Let me figure out how I can get out of this. And that'll be through death. And that's what, that's what brought me into 12-step recovery or into recovery, because I'm going to be honest with you, I did not want to go back to AA. I thought, well, let me, let me Google this, because, you know, in the 90s, it, whenever I got sober the first time, there was no internet. Mm-hmm. So, but now I have the help of Google. So let me Google this and figure out how I can do this on my own. Yeah. And that's how I found Nancy Grace's book, and I read it, mm-hmm. and it made a ton of sense to me. And that's how I found your podcast, cool. and I was just listening to it on repeat. I, I got a membership at Planet Fitness, and I started walking on the treadmill, and I started listening to your podcast. And then I found Tommy Rosen at Recovery 2.0, sure. and I was listening to him, and he had a bunch of great people on there like Guru Singh and, and I don't know, just great, great, like, new thought leaders, and yeah, that was making a ton of sense stuff. to me. Yeah, all good stuff. Yeah, so he was super cool. But... I still needed some support, you know? So I wandered into an AA meeting, I think in January of 2017, and I've been going ever since. And what I have found there is just a powerhouse of women who want to help you and support you and love you. And for me, that's just what I need because, I mean, I just, I need strong women next to me who understand the struggle. Yeah, that's a trend. And that's what I got. Yeah, you got yeah, it to is try, a try. man. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's so cool. So it wasn't hard. It wasn't easy getting sober. I mean, the first thirty days is is terrible. I mean, I mean, but it's worth every bit of it. And having had a husband who's had cancer, a sister who died from cancer, like cancer is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And getting sober is really uncomfortable. But I'm gonna live through it. You know what I mean? Like on the other end of this, there's life. But I have to do the littlest things of just not drinking and then staying centered on a daily basis in, in whatever way that I plug into spirit or God or whatever. And, and things will work themselves out. But I've got to do the work. 
Fran, I love what you just said. Is in the beginning, sometimes your knuckles are white. It's just a line in the sand that I'm not drinking no matter what. And it feels like a, like a, no zone. matter what, no matter what at, at, at the beginning. Right. And that no matter what mentality, like that can't last if, if you're just doing willpower, willpower is finite and that won't last. But in the beginning, no matter what. And I feel like it's a video game like Zelda where you just unlock different levels. <laughs> and then like, okay, wow, you like you, there's a breakthrough after breakthrough after breakthrough. And you just got to keep going because you never know when the next breakthrough is going to come. And I just had the biggest breakthrough of my recovery oh, three and a half years in, right? And then that's... You what, did? I did. And that's Monday's podcast episode. So sorry to bring it oh, back yay. there again. So, <laughs> but at the beginning, it was hard. And I just had to take one step in front of the other. I went to a canyon. I hiked every day. I physically removed myself yeah. from they were serving alcohol. And I had to go through all that stuff, that hard stuff to get through where I'm at today. Yeah. And you, you know, yeah, the day-to-day thing, like that one day at a time phrase, the cliche phrases that you hear mm-hmm. around recovery rooms, yeah. they, they are, you know, some people have a judgment about them, but for me, it literally is like my pressure valve release. Like I only have to do this today. I only oh. have to do this for like, even if it's talking about like not having sugar, cause I've recently discovered that I have a major sugar addiction mm-hmm. and I, I, I will even lie about having sugar. It's, it's insanity, but like, even just for this next minute, I'm not gonna have sugar for the next hour. I'm not gonna have sugar. Sure. You know, it's just, you have to break it down into little segments because the human mind can just get so overwhelmed. Oh, absolutely. We, we need to sit more <laughs> as a species. Yeah. And it's so hard to sit more in this, in, in 2018, it's so hard to do with this like incredibly powerful device in our pocket called a smartphone and traffic and cars. It's so hard to just sit and take it one oh, yeah. bite at a time. It's, uh, it's so hard. And, and, and Fran, what's, what's your recovery portfolio like today? Like, how are you going to get, you know, month 19, month 20, two years, we're taking it one day at a time, but you get the point. Yeah. So when I wake up in the morning, I've kind of trained my brain to, to think the first thing I need to do is, is, is be grateful. Like, what can I focus on in gratitude? Um, so I'll literally get out of bed, go downstairs, make my coffee, come upstairs, and I've created a yoga slash massage room in my house. And I will sit down and read from a meditation book. Um, I've been recently reading Melody Beattie's The Language of Letting Go. I'll just read some inspirational stuff and then sit in silence for maybe five or ten minutes and then practice some yoga and then go to work. And then I will hit a meeting or I'll talk to my sponsor or I'll listen to a podcast throughout the day. So that's how I plan to stay sober. Yeah, uh, I think that book by Melanie Beattie is like our October or November book club book in 2019 for Cafe oh. or for 2018 for Cafe RE. Like, w- w- tell me about that book. I'm curious. Well, this one is um, it's her daily meditation series. So it's called The Language of Letting Go. And she is the author of Codependent No More and Beyond Codependency. And so, like, for instance, today's meditation is titled Living Our Lives. And then it just goes into greater detail about, you know, how how do we identify with ours and with other people's. And, you know, it's about boundaries. And a lot of people in addictive patterns have issues with boundaries. That's big. <laughs> boundaries are big. Yeah. And sometimes we boundaries need to set are boundaries. Big. And there's a lot of people that aren't going to like the boundaries and that's okay because there's a Fran 2.0 and not everybody's going to like that because the Fran 2.0 has new boundaries and the new Paul Churchill has boundaries and I'm setting yeah. those up and not everybody likes them. And that's okay, Fran. I, well, I do believe it's okay. And you know, another thing I've discovered is that the healthier I get, 
the health, the more permission those around me get to become healthy too. Like for instance, my husband has been able to like really kind of heal some of his stuff as a result of me taking all the pressure off of him. You know what I mean? To fill my emotional stuff. So yeah, it's just been good stuff. I mean, our marriage is really good right now. And I would, him and I would both say that, you know, two years ago, we were both wondering how in the hell we can get out of it. But being sober has literally allowed me to be comfortable with who I am and my emotions and being able to identify my emotions and being able to communicate my emotions to him and being able to like exercise the pause, like not have to say something that I know is going to be hurtful because then I'm going to have to apologize for it later. Like I'm more aware of my, my thinking. So therefore I'm aware of how my words affect other people. So it's allowed me to be more mindful. You just did a great job of summarizing the key benefits of sobriety. I mean, yeah, you can only control your responses. That's so cool. Um, yeah. and, and before we get to the rapid fire round, Fran, I want to chat with you about your left hand and your right hand. You are a healer. Your profession's really cool. And I want to talk to you um, about energies and, you, oh. you know, massages, they physically feel good. But um, in addition to that, like you're helping people heal on a deeper level than just like the physical stuff. And I'm, yeah. I don't know much about it, but I mean, you can release energies and like pent up things from years in people's bodies. Like that's yeah. really cool. Talk to me more about that. Well, uh, it's a gift. Uh, first of all, I mean, it, it truly is a wonderful opportunity. Like, oh my gosh. Um, when I'm able to be present for somebody and help them or give them permission to get into their breath so they can let go, it really is magical. I mean, I, I don't know how to put it into words. Um, there's just something that takes place between two human beings when you stop using your words and you start focusing on your breath mm. and you're just living in the moment. And, and people are hurting. I don't care if you have addiction, if you, and we have an opioid crisis for a reason because people are literally hurting and, and I teach college students. So often I'll say to them, Hey, you know, um, are you guys doing self massage at home? And the answer is always no. And the reason is because nobody's ever said to us as a human race that it's okay to massage yourself. You know what I mean? We always think of massaging ourselves and self stimulation and we, we, we relate this stuff to sex. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you have to you dial it back a little bit. You know, this is the only body you're ever going to be given. And um, we need to honor it and we need to respect it. And as somebody drinking alcohol, I was not honoring and respecting my body. I was making really bad choices. And I don't know. So as a body worker, I don't know, man. It's like, it's almost like I've been led to do that work and that's kept me close to source. I, I don't know how else to describe it. I, I I love it. You did a great job of describing it, and we, like we just just the power to touch two humans with the unspoken word, not sexual. It's 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 incredible. It's it's healing at a deep level. That's awesome. Um, and Fran, we have reached yeah. the rapid fire round. If you'd answer these questions in thirty to sixty seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Sure. Fran, besides the two moments uh, uh, running out of jumping out of a car, hiding behind the bushes, what was your worst memory from drinking? Gosh, my worst memory from drinking is definitely. Looking up, seeing my child, seeing me drunk, and the despair in her face. Hmm. And we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you can't control your drinking? Driving from CVS and Walgreens to buy different wines that have screw tops and putting them in soda cups, like 
that's my oh shit moment. Like, oh shit, can't even go to the gym without having a drink on the way home. Yeah. And Fran, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a book, 12-step, mobile app, whatever. Hmm. Jeez, I feel like if I say, I, I, I'm going to go with my sponsor. Awesome. I love her to death. She's wonderful. Sweet. And Fran, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? It's going to get better. Fact. If we stay away from alcohol, it's going to get better. Yeah. And what part and piece of guidance better. can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? I think it would be, it's okay. It's okay to to give your, yourself a shot. Like just really try to live a life without any drugs or alcohol so you can experience it. Like, and it's going to be okay. There's going to be light at the end of the tunnel. I promise you. And you're going to find your tribe. It's okay. And you're worth it. I love it. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Yeah. And, and last friend, give us your own customized. You might be an alcoholic if we heard some good ones in there. So I'm excited. <laughs> you might be an alcoholic if, uh, well, I think I said it. If your if your reverend or your pastor from your church has to get you out of your car to take you home. <laughs> yeah, that works. Fran, thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator podcast. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening, Paul. While meditating this morning, a cool concept came to my mind. That is the sit-to-run ratio, or at least that's what I'm going to call it. What that entails is do your best to follow a ratio of 1 to 1 or at least 1 to 2 or 1 to 3. What that means is if you run for 10 minutes, try to find a time in your day when you can also sit and be with yourself for 10 minutes. If you run for 20, do the 2 to 1 ratio. Sit for 10 minutes. If you run for 30 minutes, at least sit for 10 minutes. Jogging, running, walking, all is incredibly healthy for recovery. However, there were times looking back, both before I got sober and after I got sober, where the motivation for my runs wasn't exactly healthy. I was running away from my problems of sorts, shall I say. When I run, I'm able to check out. I don't know if it's the runner's high or whatnot, but I don't feel anything. I just go. But the words, I don't feel anything while running, although nice at the time, isn't beneficial for me to feeling the emotions. So I've dedicated a lot of time to just sitting. And I'm going to do my best to abide by these ratios as well. If I run for 30 minutes, I'm going to do my best to sit and be with Paul Churchill for at least 15 minutes. Sitting and being with Paul Churchill prior to sobriety was painful. Just the current situation was painful. In sobriety, one of the many gifts I have been given is the ability to just sit and be with this guy, Paul. And guess what? It's even enjoyable. And to ensure this content remained free, please support today's sponsor, Simple Contacts. Okay, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. 